You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before we begin, I want to remind you about the fact that there is a website associated with this podcast, wealthformula.com. That's where you go for all the resources that you can't get just by listening, various downloads, and you can get uh, webinars, things like that. And you can join the lists that I think uh, really can bring this whole experience to life, whether that's the accredited investor list or just getting on our list of distribution. Anyway, uh, today I want to talk to you a little bit about Something that I don't know, I guess a lot of us don't think about, but it's funny, the other day uh, in Dallas, one of our investors there had mentioned this topic of, is this, you know, are we running out of food or is the, country, is the world going to run out of food, right? It sounds kind of like, oh, I mean, gosh, it's, you know, 2022, can we really run out of food? So anyway, I had a chance to talk to a guy about this. So, but let's start out with, let's back up a little bit. And talk about the current situation and why that might be adding to some kind of potential problem here. As you know, we're in the middle of a bunch of inflation and inflation increases wealth disparity. Now, this is an interesting concept because think about it for a moment. Okay, so CPI indices, you know, you always hear about inflation in terms of CPI indices or CP, the CPI index. They only really measure a basket of goods and services, you know, like eggs and milk and things like things that you need to live. But, you know, what it doesn't measure is a thing that we all know it goes up during inflation, which we actually welcome, which is the value of our portfolios right now. Obviously, you you're looking at some rate increases right now. We have the temporary blips. But overall, inflation does increase asset values as well. So asset inflation is a real thing. But uh, think for a moment, you know, you're poor, you don't have any money to invest. So you only get the downside of inflation, the increasing costs of goods and services. Prices for everyday stuff goes up and it becomes harder and harder just to get by. So how bad can it get? Well, we already know that there is food insecurity in our own country, right? So there's like literally people in the richest, most powerful country in the world that don't have enough to eat. And there are pressures on food supplies globally now. There's some weather issues, droughts. There's obviously the war in Ukraine, which is supposedly the breadbasket of Europe. So are we heading to a worldwide food shortage? And if we are, what are the consequences to those at the top of the food chain? namely us. I mean, lucky us, but what are the consequences for us there? You know, maybe we don't go hungry, but hunger is a big driver of social unrest globally, and that affects all of us. And the world is already a highly volatile place. Anyway, this is a topic, I think it's an interesting one, and I was fortunate enough to find a guy who, this is what he studies, and he's a professor at the University of Minnesota, the great state of Minnesota, as I uh, call it, because I am from there. And I'm, by the way, I'm heading there next week. Anyway, that's going to be the topic of today's conversation when we come back from these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Mark Bellamare. 
Uh, Mark is a distinguished McKnight University professor, distinguished university teaching professor, and Northrop professor in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, the great state of Minnesota, as uh, I, I will call it, where he also directs the Center for International Food and Agricultural Policies, the author of Doing Economics, What You Should Have Learned in Grad School But Didn't. Uh, Mark, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, t- today I, I think um, this is a very interesting topic. Um, you are uh, an applied uh, food economist, right? And now tell us exactly what that means and what it is that you study. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I started out my, so my graduate work was in international development. Um, To make a very long story short, the Hatch Act and the Morrill Act back in the 1850s and 60s created the network of land-grant universities and there's one land-grant per state uh, in this state in Minnesota it's the it's the University of Minnesota in California it's the University of California at Berkeley University of California Davis um, and in that network of land-grant there are agricultural economics departments and over the course of the 20th century Ag econ departments became applied econ departments because of the role of agriculture had been declining in the U.S. economy. So those departments started looking for, you know, expanding in other directions, which included food markets. So going basically from production of food to consumption of food, uh, environment and natural resources and international development, namely in the form of agricultural development in, uh, in, in low and middle income countries. And that's where I come in. So I went to grad school at Cornell. Uh, in which is the ag school in New York state. Um, and I wanted to be a development economist. And for, I would say for the first five, six years of my career, that's what I was. Uh, I wrote a dissertation on agrarian contracts and how the modes of kind of organizations. So I was interested in how um, landlords kind of transfer the tenant could transfer kind of land to tenants, right. In, in rental contracts. And then I also wrote a little bit about uh, contract farming, which is the institution where, a processor who might be really good at transforming some commodity or exporting it uh, decides to contract out the production of that to uh, farmers. And that's what got me started into kind of this food space, into thinking about agricultural and food value chains. And then after a little while, uh, when, when the food crisis of 2008 hit, I started being interested in uh, high and volatile food prices, right? That was the first food crisis of the, tw- of the 21st century. And that's when I started thinking, hey, there's something there, right? There's something that I can contribute to that most people don't really think about, which is uh, food price volatility. And that's how I got started in that area. So it may seem like a fairly straightforward or obvious question, but you know, what are the causes of food crises? If you look back and say in modern times, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, what what drives a food crisis? Yeah, I think to start with, and it's not an obvious question, right? To start with, you have to have kind of a working definition of what a food crisis is. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, like, like Justice Potter Stewart said, I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's mainly a case where you have kind of a, a, an unexpected food price spike, uh, and then food prices start trending up. And so in 2008, what happened, it was a rice it was a rice-driven food crisis, right? So the, the price of rice spiked. I think there might have been a couple of natural disasters in Southeast Asia. The Philippines decided to close their borders, which compounded the problem. And, and I remember um, at that time, Costco actually in the U.S., they, they capped the number of, of bags of rice that you could buy at two, which I thought 
this is crazy, right? We live in, in the wealthiest country in the world. We have never had issues with our food supply. And now they're capping that. And so this gets to what kind of I think is really the issue with a lot of food crises is the problem gets compounded by the fact that what we have to fear is fear itself, right? There are people who see food prices go up sharply and their first reaction is not to say, oh, well, food is getting scarcer. The price is going up. That's going to kind of force some people to find something else to buy. And, you know, the fact that prices are going up is a, is a good rationing mechanism. Their reaction instead is to say food prices are going higher. I'm going to buy as much as I can. And so there they are contributing to the problem. And then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, and so I, I would say that, you know, typically the sequence of events that you're going to see is there is some disruption in the supply. It's, it's usually supply driven. It's not demand driven, right? It's not the case that all of a sudden people realize, hey, you know what? Wheat is a really good thing to eat, right? This is what, those are staple crops. People kind of consume them year in, year out, rice, wheat, maize. It's usually a supply thing where you have a natural disaster or you may have some conflict somewhere that just kind of all of a sudden will kind of cause the supply to be restricted, prices go up, and then people kind of, there's a feedback effect where people react to that by just kind of starting to hoard and accumulating. So right now, as we speak, uh, if you look at what's going on in the world, where are we with, are, are we are we in potential danger of any kind of food crisis right now based on, I don't know, the war or any kind of other uh, weather patterns or anything like that that uh, we should be aware of? Yeah, I think we are in a food crisis, to be honest. I mean, um, food prices are... I haven't checked in about two months, but food prices were trending sharply upwards. Um, we have food price inflation in this country, right, which we haven't had in a long time. It's part of general inflation, but food is a big component of people's kind of consumption basket. Um, to make things kind of fairly clear and obvious, right, there have been a number of bad harvests here and there. Uh, we had a drought last year here, which kind of depleted our um, kind of our usual kind of inventory. Um, and but the biggest contributor is obviously the fact that Ukraine and Russia combined are 28% of the world's wheat supply. And what that means is if, you know, this didn't all of a sudden go down to zero, Russia is still exporting to some countries, right? Not everyone has sanctioned Russia, but the world's wheat supply has taken a hit and wheat goes into so many things, as you probably know, right? And so that in itself, right, you, you might think, well, okay, the price of wheat's gone up, but what about other things? Well, those kind of staple commodities are all to some extent substitutes for one another. They're not perfect substitutes. It's not the case that, you know, sorghum or millet are perfect substitutes for wheat. But if the price of wheat goes up high enough, people are going to start consuming barley and, you know, maize and sorghum and millet and certainly in, in poor countries, right? People will kind of revert to consuming those coarser grains rather than finer grains like rice and wheat. And so the fact that we, we have these commodities that are substitutes for one another, especially those core kind of uh, staple commodities, means that everything, you know, once one spikes up, then you see kind of increases, maybe not as large or as considerable in the price of other commodities, but they all kind of move together typically. And so that's, that's what's happening currently. Can you talk a little bit about, maybe drill down a little bit on the, the issue of, of shortage? Because I think, you know, uh, most people who are listening to this podcast, of course, we're just seeing prices go up and we just assume it has to do with inflation. But you mentioned something specifically about, um, you know, Ukraine uh, and I think in Russia um, 
the, those Ukraine in specific, I think I, I've heard it called the breadbasket of Europe. Is that uh, is this something therefore that you would expect to hit Europe a lot more than the U.S. even? Europe more than the U.S. certainly, but the people who will be the most hit are are net importing, food importing countries, right? So think about, for instance, Middle East, North African countries are the ones that are typically importing a lot of their staple crops. So the, the kind of the, the ideal, not the ideal case, but the, the kind of the prototypical case, I should say, is Egypt. If you look at what happened in 2010, 2011, um, the Arab Spring pretty much started with the food crisis. Um, Egypt decided to stop subsidizing imports of wheat. The price of bread, of bread shot up, and that contributed uh, to the fact that we saw regime change in Egypt, and then that spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Not everywhere, but it certainly spread uh, in a social way. So Europe is probably going to feel it a little bit more, although Europe is, you know, they produce a lot of their own food. Um probably more than the U.S. because we are well positioned in the U.S. to import from Canada, right, and to import from, you know, from Australia. Um, but at the same time, the, the places that I actually worry about is not so much, you know, those wealthy OECD countries like us in Western Europe. It's really kind of sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, North Africa. I wonder if you, you know, I don't know if this is part of what you study, but I mean, obviously when you have food crises, you, um, I think, I think the broader implications of a food crisis is social unrest. Um, is that is that something that you study, and can you see some of that potential happening right now? Yes, that is exactly something that I have studied. In fact, one of my most cited pieces of work is a paper titled "Rising Food Prices, Food Price Volatility, and Social Unrest." And what I did in that paper was to establish the first causal link, not just a correlation, but a causal link. So there are, there are a variety of statistical techniques you can use to tease out, you know, causal relationships beyond all reasonable doubt from you know, observational data, non-experimental data. And in that paper, that's what I did. Um, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds of what statistical techniques I've used. Your readers can certainly consult an article that's easily findable. They can email me if they want to see it. But in that paper, what I did is I... I took kind of uh, a time series of food prices from January of 1990 to the end of 2011. This is a paper that was published in 2015. I started working on it in 2011. Um, so, it, it, and I'm thinking of updating it this summer. So I may have kind of a new ish version sometime at the end of summer. Um, but what I showed is, so there was a lot of talk at the time about how price volatility was really bad. Okay. And I'm going to get a little bit wonky here. Um, but volatility is unexpected departures from a mean level, right? Either up or down. And the problem is that when, when the commentariat um, and media personalities talk about volatility, what they typically mean is movements upward. Uh, but that's not volatility. Volatility is a measure of variance. And what they actually kind of refer to as volatility is just the mean going up. Right. And so I wanted to kind of this was kind of my my wonky, you know, academic interest in the whole thing was I know what volatility is. I know what it does to people. And it sure as heck is not what we're seeing in, in the cities in kind of low income countries. And so I first set out to kind of show, is it really volatility or is it rising price levels? And what I found in that paper is that people riot in response to rising levels. Volatility doesn't really do anything to social unrest. In fact, in the one kind of 
I've looked at a number of results, but in the one result where there was a relationship between volatility and uh, social unrest, it went counter to what people were saying. Um, so there is was, was that because prices were going down or what? Why? I mean, no one's going to get upset about no. So w- so when I look at volatility, right? It's I'm holding the level constant. So it's not because prices are going down. It's because there's more and more uncertainty around the the, the price, the mean of the price distribution. Look, to make a long story short, volatility, so holding mean constant, increasing uncertainty around the food, the, the expected price, um, mainly hurts food producers. So that's bad for farmers who have to kind of, you know, they sink literally resources into the soil six months ahead of harvest. They don't know what the price is going to be at harvest time. That is especially true in um, countries where we don't have insurance or crop insurance schemes. Uh, And so they get hurt by price volatility. Consumers don't care about volatility. Consumer shows up at market. And if, you know, there's some kind of unexpected departure from the price of, you know, rice to something else, they're just going to substitute away. Right. Um, And so that's, that was kind of my angle for this was, I know what volatility does. It really hurts only producers. Producers don't really get to riot all that often. You have peasant uprisings occurring in history, I mean, I think the last time we heard of peasant uprisings, it might have been in India in the 1940s and 50s. I'm not, I'm not super up on the literature on peasant uprisings. I have political science friends who, who are interested in that. But what we were seeing mainly at the time was social unrest in the form of, you know, consumers in cities getting really upset and really kind of antsy about the fact that prices were going up. And so it was really rising food prices, not food price volatility that seemed to cause this kind of spike in social unrest that we saw in, uh, in 2008 first and then 2010 and 2011. Uh, I'm curious if you're, if you, you have an idea of what's going on, say within uh, Russia right now in terms of uh, food prices and, and um, you know, they, they're, they are the subject of a number of sanctions. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of isolated right now. They're in a, there's a regime there that is, you know, holding a war against Ukraine that's very unpopular in the world. I'm just curious uh, not to ask you what you think you're going to, going to happen with that government, but do you have any idea what, what the situation is in Russia with food prices? I don't. I mean, what all I, so all that we hear coming out of Russia, a lot of it is kind of shrouded in this fog of war, right? Where, it's not clear what we're getting the whole story. Uh, here's what I know. I have a co-author. I have a colleague. She is Russian. Um, and we have a meeting. We have a recurring meeting once a week to talk about our research project. And so, you know, of course, we talk about what goes on in the world. And uh, she said what, what she told me is the regime is very popular there because there's a near blackout on what's coming from the outside world. And all they hear is the, is the, the government's line. I don't know what happens to food prices. What I can tell you is that there's a lot of expressed support for the regime within Russia. Um, but how much of that is kind of, you know, uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves, right? How much of that is coerced? And I say that I like the regime because I worry about my family is really hard to tell. Um, but I would imagine that on the ground, the food price situation, given the sanctions, is probably not great. But I haven't really followed that super sure. closely. When you when you talk about a food crisis, again, I think um, people who are listening to this program might want to know sort of for for the you know top five percent or whatever in the U.S. Do you what implications does it have 
you know, for, for the wealthy Americans, or is it just a cost issue? And, and, and I guess as a corollary to that, you know, how does a uh, food crisis depend, uh, you know, how does it um, affect people who are in, in different places? For example, um, rural versus urban, um, does, does it, you know, do, how does that affect different types of Americans when it happens and, and, you know, as it gets worse? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I would say that, you know, you're uh, not just the top 5%. I would say the top, you know, 50 to 30%, 50, you know, 30 to 50% of incomes in the U.S., right, are, yeah, we're going to pay a little bit more for our food. Like my, my kind of medium-term outlook is we're going to pay more for our food. It, we're not going to feel it all that much. Um, you know, it might mean one fewer weekend away during, you know, one fewer weekend holiday away. Um, and so it's not going to be, it's not, it's not be greatly felt, even though like we hear stuff like, oh, the price of eggs has doubled in some places and so on. And again, it's part of a generalized inflation. So it's going to be hard to kind of disentangle, um, what are, what are the effects of gas prices, right? Versus food prices, because, you know, the price of gas goes into transporting our food at the end of the day, what we pay for our food is like the, the, the price, you know, the food dollar. Uh, and I have some colleagues who have written about the food dollar. They have, they had an article in nature food earlier this year where they show that very little of what we pay for our food in this country and other wealthy countries is actually, actually is food itself. A lot of it is packaging. A lot of it is kind of refrigeration, transportation, logistics, processing, and so on and so forth. And so it's not going to, I, I don't think it's going to be great. The 5% certainly won't feel it very much, right? The people who feel it the most, and so, and that for, for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, the main reason being what I just said, that the, the price of food is very little, you know, changes in the price of food are, are due in very small part to, to price in the food itself. It's usually other things that are kind of tacked on to the kind of the cost of production. Also, because there's this phenomenon where you have this empirical regularity where if you look at budget share of food, right, for the, for the average household or for, you know, if you, if you take a bunch of households in the U.S. population and you look at the budget share of food, the budget share of food declines as income goes up. There's only so much we can eat, right? And even though we might be consuming better quality food as we get wealthier, the budget share of food for the average American household goes from about seven to 15 percent and of course that goes increasing as you go towards the left tail of the distribution so poorer households spend a lot more of their budget on food um your household my household probably doesn't right we probably spend at most 10 12 percent on food uh which you know compared to some of some of the figures that i've seen for you know poorer countries i mean i remember reading an article when i was in graduate school that talked about poor households in rural Madagascar, where they consume rice three times a day if they can afford it. And the budget share of rice for some of those households was 85%. So can you imagine if, if you know, 85% of your budget, because they're so poor, and because that's basically the only thing they eat if they can afford it. So it, is it going to be felt more in rural areas and urban areas? I think in urban areas is going to be, I think the people who are gonna bear the brunt of this is the urban poor. Um, in rural areas, you know, you're closer to the food supply. You might not get all the variety that you get in cities, but you at least get a bunch of the staples, like you can find eggs, milk, uh, meat, certain vegetables. And then, of course, that depends on where you live. So if you live in the middle of Iowa, you might not have access to all the specialty crops, you know, that they have in California, all the fruits and vegetables. But I would think that this will be mostly felt by the urban poor who don't have kind of easy access to the food supply. 
Um, and just to kind of to tell you one small anecdote, right? I was talking to um, my neighbor turned me on to the CSA that they've been getting their vegetables from uh, these past couple of summers. And I was telling him yesterday, uh, well, wow, that CSA was kind of expensive. You have to pay everything in one lump sum. And then I, I realized just after saying that, <laughs> you know what, given the food price inflation, it was probably a pretty good bet that I, because I just buy, you know, I, so I gave something like $900 to the CSA, the CSA which when you pay your credit card, you're like, wow, that's a lot of money for just fruits and vegetables for a summer. But then in, res- in retrospect, you think, well, the prices might be going up. So maybe yeah. I made a pretty good deal this time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, yeah. That's funny. Actually, you're, <laughs> you're like, who can I ask about this? Oh, I guess that's what I do for a living, yeah. right? Uh, that that's interesting. So, so in some, I, I guess the, uh, the takeaway, I guess, from, um, what I'm getting for, for, you know, more wealthy U S populations is our primary, you know, effect on us is kind of what happens to other people and the, you know, the, the global impact, uh, on the poor and social unrest and, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's the main thing. I'm curious, do you have any like anecdotes and historical anecdotes of that, that you can share just in terms of how, how a food crisis turned into, you know, some kind of uh, significant social unrest that we might not really kind of understand? I think the flagship case is let the meat cake, you know, what Marie Antoinette said during the French Revolution, you know, they're like, well, you know, there's no bread, let the meat cake. It, it turns out apparently the quote is apocryphal that she might not have exactly said that, but I think it kind of captures the spirit of what went on during the revolution where, you know, the price of food was going up and stuff was getting more expensive. And, you know, it it would, you know, she might not have said it exactly that way, but it was exactly in keeping with how clueless the nobility and the, and, and the monarchy was at the time where it's like, well, if there's no bread, why don't they eat cake? Right. Well, because it's a substitute for bread and it's just as expensive. Uh, And so that would be kind of my flagship case. And I I like to bring that up when I teach about, you know, I teach an undergraduate class in international development and I spend a couple of weeks on food security and nutrition. And when I talk about food crises, that's one of my examples. I wouldn't be worried about social unrest in this country necessarily. Um, you may see, you know, a couple of people just, you know, steal food because they can't afford it. Uh, that doesn't count as social unrest. Social unrest is really kind of a low-income country phenomenon where uh, the food supply is, is really threatened um, and or food security is really threatened at the end of the day. I wouldn't worry about that too much. What, you know, what might happen is in order to respond to the fact that food prices are, get, are, are going up and food is getting more expensive for lower income households is, you know, governments might decide to kind of start uh, transfer programs where they just kind of subsidize some of that for low income households. And then where, you know, where we would see it as kind of, you know, as people who are not affected directly by this would be through our tax bill. But uh, at the end of the day, how much of that, you know, how much more would we pay in taxes because of this, given how much, you know, the, the totality of all things that we already pay for would probably be, I would think it'd be barely detectable uh, for most people. Yeah. Good stuff, Mark. Um, where can we learn more about uh, the work you're doing? So there's my website, www.markmarcf belmar b-e-l-l-e-m-a-r-e.com i have a blog that i've been maintaining for um, over 10 years i haven't posted uh, recently but 
Uh, there's a lot of stuff about food security and nutrition on there. There's a lot of stuff about my book as well uh, and my Twitter feed. Uh, so at Mark F. Belmar is where I, I, where a lot of my social media presence is felt. Uh, and I will often kind of tweet about these things. So I would say that's a good start. I, I try to share content from other people that are about these topics, right? That are about food security and nutrition. Thanks for being on the show, Mark. Uh, it is, uh, we'll love to have you back. Uh, hopefully, especially if things get worse and we start wondering if we're going to have more issues and implications from, from what's going on. Thanks, Buck. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So I guess the bottom line is big sigh of relief in a way, I guess, at least for those of us who are worried about running out of food. Generally, the experts are saying, well, if you're in the top 50% of the world, you probably don't have much to worry about. But then there is the whole social unrest thing that we do need to keep an eye out for. It's an interesting thing. A note on inflation I think it's a, obviously we're, we're cranking around like 8%, 9% feds talking about raising rates, another, you know, maybe another 175 basis points over the next, I don't know, a couple of years or something like that. But one interesting thing that I found, uh, I was reading about was Michael Burry. Michael Burry is a physician, if you recall from the Big Short movie who shorted the the whole financial crisis in the 2008-2009 area uh, era and uh, you know he made tons and tons of money one of the things that he tweeted out was this idea that there is this massive glut in terms of inventory you know because we had a shortage of inventory for a long time and then all of these you know walmart's and targets or whatever they all went crazy stacking up orders of inventory to the point where apparently in some stores now they got to the point where if somebody wants to return something they say okay we'll give you your money back but please just keep what you have there because we don't have any room for it so that is a very very deflationary signal so keep an eye out for that obviously michael burry is a little bit of a contrarian he's been right before you know, guys like Larry Summers, who, you know, may be a little bit more mainstream, but he's, he's also a very, very smart guy, obviously. Uh, doesn't think that's the case, but it is interesting to think that it is quite possible, if Michael Burry's right, that, you know, within uh, the next year, we could actually see a reversal, because if we have deflationary pressures and rates necessarily have to go down. At any rate, uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.